Well, good morning. <laughs> it is wonderful to see so many familiar masks out here this morning, and even uh, a new mask out there. Welcome, uh, at least new to me. Good to see you. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Richard Caskey. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community Bible Church. And if you're visiting with us, we are glad that you've chosen to worship the living God with us this morning. And we've now come to that portion of our service where we worship the Lord through the opening, reading, and preaching of his word. And oh, this is special, because on this day, our time in the word will be spent learning about and treasuring his word. For we are in one of the greatest portions of scripture that speaks of itself. And it unfolds some amazing truths for us. So we are indeed excited to open God's word this morning. But before we do that, let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for the blessing of meeting, to sing your praise, to open your word. Reach out to touch your people and let us hear you speak through your word this morning. And as we come to your precious word, O Lord, we ask for wisdom and understanding. Open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things out of your law. Teach us, O God. Make us understand. Strengthen us according to your word. Do a mighty work of grace in our lives today. May we be filled with great joy because of your word. Bless us now as you speak to us. And Lord, I pray that you will use your servant, though frail, weak, greatly flawed, to declare your truths from your word. Let me speak with love and truth for your name's sake. Amen. Well, we are in Psalm, the book of Psalms, and we are specifically in Psalm chapter 119. John Piper calls chapter 119 the redwood among the mighty Psalms. He says that for a couple reasons. Number one, it is indeed the longest psalm in the entire book of Psalms out of 150. And it's also an acrostic based on the Hebrew alphabet. Each stanza consists of eight verses and they're represented by a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The first Hebrew letter, Aleph, that would be verses one through eight, describes the blessing that comes from living according to God's word. Now, Jared covered these verses two weeks ago. He mentioned four ways to make the word of God more pervasive in our lives. He said, we must read the word of God. We must recall the word of God. We must recite the word of God. And we must rely on the power of the word of God. And I love how he uses that alliteration throughout that. And I decided to take a more complex and I decided that none of my words have alliteration in them this morning just to make it uh, more challenging for me. But anyway, the second stanza is represented by the letter bait. And that encourages us to begin living God's law while we were young. I think Jared will be preaching on, this, on these verses uh, soon, so I won't elaborate on them. But to recap, the first two stanzas, they tell us that uh, by living by God's holy and righteous decrees, that that's a blessing to us. And we should begin doing that as early, as life, or early in life as possible. Now, the next two stanzas, represented by the Hebrew letters Gimel and Dalit, tell us that when we live by God's word, trials will come our way. In the third stanza, Gimel, the psalmist describes alienation and slander that we must endure due to keeping God's word. Yeah, I know you all thought that the Christian life was all about, you know, living the good life, eating shoe fly pie. Uh, but in this stanza, the psalmist describes the external trials of living as a stranger and then being slandered for living a godly life. He begins the stanza, and I'll read that to you because I know we didn't read it this morning yet. But he says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. And he begins by asking the Lord to deal bountifully with him that he may have life and keep God's word. 
And what he means is he wants fullness of spiritual life that is only found in keeping God's word. And in the next verse, he describes that how that can happen. He said, open my eyes that I might behold the wondrous things out of your law. See, to the psalmist, the blessing of God and the bounty is found only in the sacred scriptures. The more that we know and understand them, the richer our spiritual life will be. And oh, that this would be our prayer. Open my eyes that I might behold the wondrous things out of your law. How beautiful, how enriching, and how simple. But then he goes on to describe trials in life. And he says, I'm a sojourner upon the earth. And why does he say that? As he is keeping God's word, he's looking around at other people who don't keep God's word. And he finds out that he's not only different, but he's in the minority. So his soul is consumed by longing for God's rules. But there are many, many more who don't long for, who don't care about God's laws. They are insolent and accursed, he says. In other words, they're proud, arrogant. They're the ones who treat God's word with scorn. So here's the harsh truth. If we're trying to follow God, the world is going to treat us like aliens. Because, you know, we are. If you feel at home in this world, it might be an indication that you don't belong to God or as a minimum, you're living far from him. You see, Jesus used these words in John chapter 15. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We cannot be at home in a world that does not know God. We are only at home when we are with God and we rejoice in him because he alone is fully satisfying. You see, we say it like this at Christ Community Bible Church. We treasure Christ as our deepest delight. When Christ is our treasure, we desire to know him more and more. See, now Augustine said it like this and he said it very well. He said, you have formed us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Next, the psalmist, our poet, describes the slander that he endures. This is a step beyond just alienation. You see, we feel like strangers because we are strangers in this world. But there's also slander, the intentional false accusations levied against us. It assigns false motives to the good we may be trying to do and charges us with evil that we do not do. Remember what Jesus said, not only will the world hate us, but it'll also persecute us for being Christians. The early church, what we call the ancient church, suffered persecution and slander because of this. They were accused uh, of many things that weren't true. Uh, they were accused because they called each other brothers and sisters of incest. They were accused of being cannibals because they said they ate the body of Christ and drank his blood at communion. And they had to deal with these, but this was slander levied against them. And our response is to take our cause to God, who will vindicate us. And in the meantime, we continue to study God's word and apply it to our lives. The psalmist describes that there are men in authority plotting his downfall. And while they're sitting around conspiring against him, he is absorbed in meditation on the higher things of God's law. And now in the, in the text for today, the next stanza, Dalit, we will see that in addition to internal trials that come from following God's word, uh, external trials, they're also internal trials. And that's what this section is about. Verse 25 says, my soul clings to the dust. It seems like this opening verse takes a stark and a dark turn. My soul clings to the dust. Later he would say, my soul melts away for sorrow. Right away, we see we're not just dealing with external trials. We're not just dealing with, 
with external forces. We're now talking about the deepest of internal struggles, struggles, our very soul. We should not think that our souls are immune to the external trials we face. The psalmist says his soul clings to dust and melts away for sorrow. There's great misery, great loss that he is suffering. And the imagery in, in verse 25, clinging to dust, dust is often used as an image for humiliation, for shame. Job used this imagery to describe his condition. He says this, he says, I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target, his archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewn sackcloth upon my skin and I have laid my strength in dust. My face is red with weeping and my eyelids is deep darkness. He's suffering. He is in extreme misery and he associates that with the dust. He says later, God has cast me into the mire and I become like dust and ashes. Job was suffering great misery. The psalmists and prophets would also use dust to describe great humiliation. When we suffer humiliation, there's nothing pleasant about it. Moreover, this humiliation comes at the realization that we're subject to the will of our captors. You see, the many prisoners of war over the years and the ages and civilian captives have experienced the humiliation of total subjugation to their conqueror. Utter humiliation knowing that you can do nothing about your circumstance. And great sorrow often accompanies great loss. We can feel sorrow for an unregenerate world that is perishing. We can feel loss and sorrow for our own sin and the loss of harmony in our relationship with God. We can feel loss and sorrow over the loss of a person close to us, either through death or other circumstances, and even loss of comfort and peace. These are the two conditions of the soul the psalmist addresses in this section. He says, my soul clings to dust. He feels devoid of life. This isn't just having a bad day. This isn't about being late to an event and feeling a little humility for that or forgetting a promise that you made. This is great misery. He is so low that his own soul is now bonded to the dust or bonded to humiliation. It clings to the dust. This is like everything is piling on to him at one time. In the previous stanza, we saw that he had opposition from the outside. He was a stranger in the land, slandered by the leaders. He felt real oppression, but there's more to it. As he is also committed to God's word, as he studies God's word, he begins to see his own sin and ugliness within himself. He is overcome by feeling like he's a stranger in the world because he wants to live for God, but he's also a stranger to God because he sees his own sin and his failures piling up like, like rotting, reeking garbage. And that's his life. He doesn't fit in anywhere. And shame and loneliness overwhelm him. It's kind of like the image of a soldier struck down on the battlefield, just waiting to die. He's been wounded and he realizes he cannot help himself. A soldier is want for greater things. A soldier is trained and prepared to fight the enemy. But how great the misery when he's losing to the adversary and realizes his own failures in training and being prepared. You see, Paul describes this inner struggle as well in his letter to Romans. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, Paul was struggling with that sin in his life that he couldn't get rid of. It wasn't just the external forces, and he, he had external opposition. 
The Jews hated him. The Roman government hated him. He was hated all around. But yet he, he also had that internal struggle of his sin and that was this greater battle. But you see, Paul's life also gives us a wonderful illustration of how as we mature spiritually, we become more and more aware of the sin in our lives. And we become more and more disgusted by that sin in our lives. In one of his earliest letters, the first letter, to what we call 1 Corinthians, which he wrote in about AD 54, he described himself there as the least of the apostles, unworthy even to be called an apostle. He said he was unworthy because he had persecuted the church. And he realized that his past sin was very great. Therefore, he ranked himself as least among the apostles. Now, if we were ranking people and Christians, we would think the apostles are, are kind of the top tier of all. And that's where he put himself was the bottom of, of that top tier. But later, when he was in prison, he wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus, which was about six years later. And in this letter, he reflected on his ministry to the Gentiles and saw the grace of God in his life. And as he reflected on grace, he also realized that that great grace was necessary because of great sin. And there he ranks himself as least of all the saints. So again, if we are looking to, to rank the people of the world, we might say, okay, well, You've got the apostles up here. They're, they're like the, the super spiritual. And Paul said he was the least of those. And then you have the, the saints or the believers here. And now he's saying he is the least of them. And below that, you just have the sinners and the unsaved. But after his release from prison, Paul revisited some of the churches at which he had ministered. And when he left Ephesus, he also left Timothy behind to deal with some of the problems in the church. And about three years after he wrote that previous letter, he wrote to Timothy to give him some further instruction. As he rehearsed the message Timothy was to share, he remembered his own sin, blasphemy, murder, insolence, and the great mercy he had received. He reminded Timothy that Christ came to save sinners. And as he reflected on his own life, he declared that he was the worst of all sinners. You see, as Paul matured, he saw more and more of his own sin in his own life. This is what he lamented in, the, in his letter to the Romans. And as he's maturing because of his understanding of the word of God and the Holy Spirit illuminating the word of God to him, he realizes his great sin. And he has great sorrow for that great sin. And as a side note, we must understand the great influence of sin in this world. See, I love this illustration that was, that was given by a seminary professor regarding sin. And he described a time that he was flying into LA and he was gonna fly into LAX. And as the plane is approaching LA, he's looking out the window and he sees the, the great LA basin and he looks down in that great LA basin and it seems to be filled with this brownish, polluted, ugly, smog and, and pollution. And he realizes, we're going to land in that. I'm going to have to breathe that. He looked down and he saw all of that smog just, just sitting in the basin. Well, when he landed, he, he came out of the airplane and he was looking for it. And as he looked up, though, he didn't see any of the smog. He didn't see the pollution. He looked up and he saw blue skies. He couldn't tell that that smog was there, but yet it was there and it permeated everything. You see, it was in the very fabric of the clothing. It got into every crevice. It was everywhere. He was breathing it in and exhaling it out. And that's what sin is like. We can't see it, and yet it permeates every aspect of humanity. And therefore, it must be dealt with on a daily basis. But moreover, I want you to hear this we mustn't be surprised when we see sin, even in fellow believers. Sin permeates this world. Boy, the more we see that, the more we understand our great need for Christ. But sin is all around us. 
And we must deal with it on a daily basis. And this is what Paul uh, was doing. There is a progression of the understanding of sin, grace, and mercy that are evident in Paul's writings. And similarly, the psalmist here is aware of his own sin. Knowing that he could do nothing to help his own situation, he cried out to God to act on his behalf. Give me life, he cries out. But he didn't just leave it at that. He said, give me life according to your word. You see, he was going to rely on the promises of God because God had promised to give life. In the book of Leviticus, Moses spoke the word of God to the people. He said, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does not keep them, or if a person does keep them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord, Moses wrote. The promise of God to his people was life if they obeyed his word. The prophet Ezekiel would also declare the same truth. He said, I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. And these are the promises that the psalmist is relying on. If I obey the word of God, God gives me life. Now, is he talking about just physical life here? No, he's, he wants this spiritual life. He wants fullness of life. This is what Christ speaks of, fullness of life. That's possible, but Where? We find it in the word of God. That's why we treasure the word of God. We're reminded when Jesus was tempted by the devil, the devil came to him when he was hungry and said, if, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And what was Jesus' reply? It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He not only relied on the word of God, he meant that it was more important to feed spiritually on God's word than to physically feed on bread. So, in his distress, the psalmist turned again to the Lord and requested life according to the promises that God had made. That's an example of faith, by the way. When we believe the promises God makes and we put our trust in them, we exercise our faith. To grow in faith, we must believe and trust in more and more of the promises of God. You see, some people might have a seven promise faith. There are seven promises in scripture that they know and they trust in. Other people might have a 70 promise faith or a 700 promise faith. But to trust in God's promises, we must know them and understand them. And in this text, the psalmist knows the promise God made in Leviticus and he trusts God to keep his promise. But he wasn't just asking for an extension or enrichment of this physical life. He wanted true spiritual life. He wants a spiritual revival in his life. And the next few verses are additional requests he makes to get that. Listen to his request. He said, when I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Listen to how he begins. When I told of my ways, he began with prayer. He had an open and honest time with the Lord. We don't know exactly what he prayed. He certainly laid out his circumstances and his great needs. He probably included a time of confession and repentance as the weight of his sin wore heavy on him. Whatever his prayers included, the Lord had answered his petitions in the past. And knowing this, he had confidence to pray again. His prayers were probably scripture saturated as he remembered God's promises and faithfulness. He probably also remembered and rehearsed his great failures and his great sin, and his great need for God to act on his behalf. We also learn that his prayer life had reflected a great love and reverence for the word of God. In verse 12, he asked the Lord to teach him his statutes. He asked the Lord would deal bountifully with him, that he may live and keep God's word. We talked about how his he had a request for God to open his eyes to the wondrous things from God's law. And in the previous verse, he asked for life based on the promises of God's word. One of the things that strikes me about this and other characters that we see in scripture is their love for the word of God and familiarity with it. When Mary, the mother of Jesus, visited her cousin Elizabeth, she spoke what we now call the Magnificat which is Latin for the first word of her song of praise when she said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And in her song of praise, she draws from scripture. She draws from the books of 1 Samuel, 
Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and others. She must have spent quite a bit of time reading and learning scripture to be able to synthesize these into a song of praise. She wove a beautiful tapestry of praise, all from her knowledge of scripture. How well do we know scripture? Could we weave a beautiful tapestry of praise from our knowledge of the God of word, that word of God? Now, I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. I want to exhort you to see what's possible when we spend time in the word. When trouble comes to your life, where do you turn? You see, trouble comes to all of us. Some people turn to food, some people to entertainment, some to alcohol. But we should turn to the word of God. For it is there that we meet the living God who is able to do more for us than we could even hope or imagine. Back to the psalm. So the psalmist opens in prayer, remembering how God has answered his prayers in the past. And what is his request in the dark shadow of great misery when his very soul is clinging to the dust? He asked the Lord to teach him his statutes. He didn't say, change my circumstances. Instead, he, he asked that he could become a more attentive student before his divine teacher. Teach me, he asks. He wants to keep learning. If his soul is clinging to dust, he must not understand how God thinks or works, and that is what he must address. You see, this was a soul issue for him. And he further increases his request to ask for understanding. Listen, he says, make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. He doesn't want just rote knowledge of Scripture. He wants real understanding of its meaning. And that should be our desire too. We don't want to just hear stories of what God did. We want to grasp the eternal truths that are in the pages of Scripture. What if we could learn more about the lawgiver as we study his laws? You can see we can read that God loves, so loves the world, as it says in John 3.16. But then, by studying the word of God, we understand that this love was willing to move heaven and earth on our behalf. This love sent the very Son of God to take on humanity, to save humanity. The glorious, radiant, beautiful, and holy Son of God would take on our sin and our shame. What kind of love is that? The psalmist spoke of humiliation but the Son of God willingly bore humiliation for our sins. And this is just a small glimpse into what the love of God is. When the psalmist asks for understanding, he's asking for divine instruction. That's what we call illumination. The benefit of this illumination is found in verse 130 of this psalm. It says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. The Holy Spirit does this. In fact, This psalm, that's Psalm 119, mentions the need for divine instruction more than any other chapter in Scripture. It also mentioned, though, in in Nehemiah, he said, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. In 1 Corinthians, we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. And again in Ephesians, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So he's praying for this divine illumination, for the Holy Spirit to make, to give him understanding, not just to to give him knowledge, but to give him understanding. And so while the Holy Spirit illumination is is indispensable and it's helpful, there are certain things that that it cannot do. He lists, uh, John MacArthur lists six things in Scripture that, that Scripture does not promise about this illumination. Illumination does not function outside of the Word of God. If you think that you're going to just wait for the Holy Spirit to illuminate you without putting the work into the study and opening Scripture, you'll be disappointed. Even in, in Christ, in Luke 24, it says, Christ opened their minds to understand Scripture. Scripture was a part of that illumination that Christ had with the disciples. Number two, illumination does not guarantee that every Christian will agree doctrinally because the human element can cause false doctrine. 
We saw in, in the New Testament where Peter and Paul disagreed on doctrinal issues. And illumination does not mean that everything about God is knowable. Deuteronomy teaches us there are secret things of God that belong only to God. So we cannot expect that we will know everything because of the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And illumination does not render the need for human teachers unnecessary. You see, Ephesians lists the gift of teaching as a spiritual gift for the edification and the building up of the church. We need teachers, yet we still have the Holy Spirit for illumination. And illumination is not a substitute for dedicated personal Bible study. Paul encouraged Timothy to work at preparation in handling the word of truth. And illumination is not a one-time experience. This is best illustrated, I think, by repeated calls to teach and, and calls for meditation. The great Charles Spurgeon cited John Kerr when he said, a man will never grow into the knowledge of God's word by idly waiting for some new gift of discernment, but by diligently using that which God has already bestowed upon him and using at the same time all other helps that lie within reach. In other words, if we want to see wondrous and beautiful things from scriptures, it's not nearly enough for us to ask God to open our eyes to it. We must also study the Bible carefully. The Holy Spirit is given not to make our study unnecessary, but to make it effective. So when we open the word of God and we ask God to illuminate our eyes, we're asking God to send his Holy Spirit to help us to understand scripture. And one of the tools that we have to go deeper is meditation. We must ponder God's word to see how it applies to our lives. We are not called to be just walking libraries of knowledge. We're called to have wisdom and to know how to apply God's word to our lives. The psalmist returns to his, his plight in verse 28. And he says, my soul melts away for sorrow. He remembers his great loss and it brings great sorrow. He says his soul melts away because of it. What was the loss that brought him sorrow? Well, we don't know. Perhaps he felt like Job who lamented that his friends had scorned him. Perhaps he saw this battle against sin as too great and like the Israelites who lost in battle and it says the heart of the people melted and it became as water. But this, this sorrow that he feels is not just a casual tear, but it's a deep sense of grief and vexation. He doesn't understand all of it and it's intense sorrow but he remembers the promises of God and calls out for God to strengthen him by his word. This is the way of our God. He strengthens us by his word. This is the same word that is sharper than any two-edged sword. This is the word that brought all of creation into being from nothing. This is the word that calmed the sea. This is the word that said, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Can God's word strengthen us? You bet it can. And again, the psalmist tells us how in the next verse. He says, first, put away, uh, put all false ways far from me. So whatever causes him to deviate from the path, he wants to be kept from sin, which has been a concern for him all along. The problem is sin and God had decreed what is good and what is right, and what is acceptable. You see, this was the very temptation that the serpent made in the garden when God told him not to eat of the tree, or the fruit of the tree of good and evil. The serpent made the false offer that said, when you, if you do eat it, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you will get to determine for yourselves what is good and what is evil. But instead of that happening, we got a chain reaction that affected all of humanity. God has dealt with the eternal consequences of sin when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And yet we still have the day-to-day -day struggles to live godly lives while we are here on earth. But God also has a solution for that sin problem. What is the solution? By the grace of God exercising itself through the word of God. That's why he asked God to graciously teach him the law. It's an act of grace. 
but one that God delights in doing. Our God sincerely loves it when we seek him through his word. This is a prayer he is always eager to answer. If we are going to be kept from sin, the false ways, it will be through the grace of God experienced through the teaching and learning of his word. At this point, verse 30, the psalmist has now been pulled out of the muck and mire of humiliation and sorrow. He declares and he sets his face and he says, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. This is kind of a rebuke of what he just said, ask the Lord to keep from him. That's false ways and sin, but it's also a declaration of what he will now do. And we are not to go blindly about hoping that we stumble upon righteous lives. We must choose to live that way. And scripture helps us to live godly lives. There's a common word found in this stanza, and that is the word way. It is used five times. In verse 26, he says, I told of my ways. In verse 27, make me understand the way. In verse 29, put false ways far from me. Verse 30, I've chosen the way of faithfulness. In verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good word. I learned this a couple years ago. I'll try to relate it to this passage. But Paul taught that Scripture is profitable for teaching. Scripture says, here is the way. This is how you live. This is the way. It is profitable for reproof. Scripture also says, hey, you're going the wrong way. Scripture points that out to us. It's profitable for correction. When scripture says, here's how you get back. You want to get back? I can show you how to get back. And scripture is profitable for training. Here's how you stay on the way. Here's how you remain on the right path. When we choose to follow the path of righteousness, we need scripture to guide us. It is a light unto our path or our way. Next, the psalmist refers to how he began in this stanza, except that this time he's not clinging to dust. He's now clinging to the testimonies of the Lord. He says in verse 31, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. In verse 25, at the beginning of this, he was clinging to dust. He was bonded to it. He was stuck to it. In other words, he was stuck to shame and humiliation. And now... He declares, he is bonded to the testimonies of the Lord, to scripture. That is the decision that he made. That's where he is at, the testimonies of the Lord. And so how do we respond to adversity in our life? Where do we turn? Well, again, we don't turn to the harmful things in this world. We turn to the word of God. And the way we get bonded to the word of God is through daily meaningful intake of the word of God. This means reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating on the word of God. The psalmist knows that when he does this, his oppressors will deride him for his commitment. They will try to shame him. So he pleads with God not to let him be put to shame. But I also think it's another. He doesn't want to be found being sinful again. He doesn't want to be mired down in sin and the shame that comes with that. So he prays that the Lord will help him stay on the path, stay on the way of righteousness. We could pray this today. You see, today in our own country, if we hold to biblical creation, we can be derided for that. People will try to bring shame to us for holding to the word of God. If we say that we believe the Bible speaks on marriage between one man and one woman, again, the world will want to bring shame upon us for saying that. There are a number of biblical teachings that are coming more and more under attack, even in our own nation. We do not hide. We do not shy away. Instead, we cling more to God's word and we pray that God will protect us and not let us be put to shame. Finally, the psalmist declares in verse 32 that he will run in the way of God's commandments 
with his heart enlarged, or when his heart is set free. The writer of Hebrews wrote, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. You see, we must run with zeal, with energy, with passion, with enthusiasm, with optimism. We have every confidence we can win this race, not because of who we are and our abilities, but because of who God is and his infinite strength. But many Christians don't run the race set before them because they do not deal with the sin in their lives. As the writer of Hebrews said, it is the sin that so easily entangles us and prevents us from running. Paul in Ephesians says of Christ in the church, he cleanses us by the washing of water through the word. So how do we get disentangled from sin? Again, by the word of God. So what do we learn from all of this? Well, I think that there are three lessons, but they're presented to us in these, in these final three verses. First, we must choose and decide to follow the Lord. This is kind of a decide now moment. Every day we put this off, it becomes more and more difficult to make this decision. Years ago, I was a youth leader in Omaha, Nebraska, and I'd taken the youth group to a conference. And we, we drove down on a Friday, and we are going to spend the night, Friday night, in a church basement who was gracious enough to offer their basement to us. And then we were going to be there all day Saturday. And in the Friday night session, the speaker had, had, had talked about doing personal devotions and, and daily scripture intake. And so one of the young seventh graders, Peter, asked me, are you going to get up and do devotions? I said, yes, I'll be getting up at five o'clock. The rest of the group didn't have to get up till six. I was going to get up at five so that I could do my devotions. And he said to me, he said, hey, will you wake me at five o'clock so I can do my devotions? And I said, I'd be happy to. I'd be glad to wake you at five o'clock to do that. And then he said, well, just so you know, sometimes my mom has to wake me up two or three times before I actually get up. So you may have to do that two or three times to get me up. And I said, no. I said, decide right now. Are you getting up at five? If you're getting up at five, I'll wake you and you get up. If you're not getting up at five, stay, stay asleep till six and we'll be good. The next morning, I woke him at five. He got right up. You see, he had decided this was an act now moment. This wasn't a, I'll put that decision off. When we make a decision that we are going to set our face to follow the Lord, we must do that wholeheartedly. We can't turn back. We can't wait. I'm happy to say this young man is now a pastor in Iowa. And uh, he has remained faithful in, in these things. But he had set his face. And I don't know even to this day, even though he's married, if his mom's supposed to call him three, four times to wake him up. But, but he, he got up because he had, he had decided that's what he's going to do. And that's what we need to do. We need to decide, are we going to follow the Lord? Are we going to do this? And if the answer is yes, then we do it. We don't do it half-heartedly. But we choose the way of faithfulness. Number two, we must hold fast to the word of God. You see, there will be competitors to the word of God. Time is a huge competitor. That's something we struggle with. Do we make time for the study of the word or do we try to find time to study scripture? You see, as we made that decision just previously that said, I will set my face, I will do this, I will follow, we have to do the same thing when it comes to Scripture. I will set aside time to read, to study, to memorize, to meditate on Scripture. We, we can't let time be a competitor to the Word of God. Also, false teachers will arise. They do in every generation. False teachers will always be among us. And if we want to know how to stand against them, we have to know the word of God. We had talked about this in our equipping class earlier this, uh, this spring. 
when we talked about heretics in the church. And a heretic is somebody who comes from within the church. And there are three things you need to know about heretics. Number one, they're always going to defend a legitimate doctrine of the Lord. So something that we would agree in, agree with, they're going to try to defend that. And then they're going to get wrong on how they defend it. But when they do, they will use scripture. That's number two. They're going to defend a legitimate doctrine and they're going to use scripture to do it. If we don't know scripture, we could fall for it. And number three, as I said, it starts in the church. These, these false teachers, these heretics come from, from within. So they're the people who, are, who could be sitting with you, people who, who you want to believe, who you, who you want to take care of. But if you don't know the word of God, how are you going to stand against the false teachers? You must know the word of God. And I'll encourage you this. It's a little sales pitch, but this fall, Jared is going to begin teaching Greek, biblical Greek. You can learn to read the Word of God in the original language, the New Testament. And that's not just for pastors. That's not just for people in academia. That's for people in the pew so that they can stand against any false teaching that will arise. Another one, culture. Even today in our country, culture is setting itself up as a competitor to the word of God. What do I mean? Well, one of the things that we hear is don't be on the wrong side of history. And what they mean by that is set aside your Christian beliefs, your biblical beliefs, and just come with us. Well, history's a long time. And uh, the word of God has been around for a long time. It's the word of God that endures forever. You see, the, that's more than history. The word of God is the then, the now, and the forever shall be. And we can trust the word of God in all things. But culture is setting itself up as a competitor to the word of God. So what do we do when we hold fast to the word of God? We talked about this. It means reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating on the word of God. By the way, there are no shortcuts to that. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody advertise, they've got the secret to the spiritual life. They've got the secret for this. There are no secrets. If you're all looking for some secret to the Christian life that allows you to bypass the time in the word of God, bypass time of prayer, you're wasting your time. Here's a secret. I'll make it known. Sit down with your copy of God's word a notebook, and a pen. Write down what you're reading, what you're seeing, and pray about it. There you go. You want to get to know the Word of God? Spend time in the Word of God. Ask the Lord to open your eyes that you may behold the wondrous things from His law. And never finish learning. That's another thing. When we hold fast to the Word of God, we realize that we're never finished. We never complete it. We never get to the end. There's always more that we could be learning. There's more time that we could be spending in the word. Again, Charles Spurgeon said, nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. So we must be lifelong learners and pay attention. We must hold fast to the word of God. So we must choose and decide that we are going to follow the Lord we must hold fast to his word. And then this third one, we must run in the way of the Lord and his commandments. And this means we must be all in. If you're going to run, this cannot be a passive decision. This cannot be something that says, well, let me deliberate on it and think about it. And, and if it happens, it happens. No, that's not how an athlete trains. An athlete trains and an athlete sacrifices. If you want to be all in, if you want to run the race, it's going to be costly. It will cost you something. You're going to have to set aside some other things, whether that is a, a, a hobby, whether that might be relationships or that might be whatever. You may have to set those aside to prioritize. 
This will be costly. And we must be willing to do that. People, we see great servants in the church and I see people who give a lot of time, but they give up other things to do that. For the sake of the body of Christ, they give up other things in their life. We must be willing to do that. We must be willing to sacrifice. And this is more than just throwing off sin that easily entangles. It means throwing off anything that hinders us from our race. You see, in Hebrews, it didn't just say throw off all sin. It says throw off anything that hinders you. We must be willing to do that. This is not agreeing to follow the things that you like or the things that are easy. This is about being all in when we want to run the race. So from this passage, we see that there will be struggles. There will be trials that will come. In the previous stanza, we saw the trials were all external. It was about being alienated. We're going to be different in this world. And because of that, the world's going to hate us. We're also going to face some some actual opposition, in this case, slander against what we do. We, We expect that. But this talks about the internal struggles, the internal trials. We have to deal with uh, sin in our lives. And Scripture is clear to that, but it gives us a way to deal with it as well. And so we choose, we make that decision that this is who I'm going to be. And then we, we cling, we hold fast to the Word of God, and then we run like crazy, and we run to the end. The reward is great. Let us pray. Holy Father, we are again confronted by the relevance of your word, its power, its clarity. Though an ancient document, it reveals more about the human condition and our only solution for fallen humanity. Thank you for the assurance you give. Open our eyes, O God, that we may behold the wondrous things from your law. Teach us your statutes. Make us to understand your way. Father, by your spirit, enable us to live as you called us to live. Help us all this day to choose to be committed to your ways of righteousness, to cling to your word and to run this race that you have set before us. We pray all of this through your son and by the spirit. Amen.